Hey everyone, this is Brian Ferguson. If you're listening to this, then I know you enjoy the Bumps and Thumps podcast. In order to continue to get the guests on and improve our podcast, we need support from listeners like you. That financial support helps us continue to do the podcast and get guests on that we normally would not be able to get on the show. Please go to anchor.fm forward slash Brian, B-R-I-A-N dot Ferguson, F-E-R-G-U-S-O-N, and the number three after, and click on the support button. There will be options there for you to make a monthly contribution. With your contribution, we can continue to conduct the podcast and ask more well-known wrestlers from the past and present that require financial compensation to be on the podcast. Again, please go to anchor.fm forward slash Brian, B-R-I-A-N dot Ferguson, F-E-R-G-U-S-O-N, and the number three, and click on the support button. Thank you for listening to the podcast, and thank you for your support. Welcome to the first episode of Bumps and Thumps. I'm your host, Brian Ferguson. It's Monday, August 3rd, 2020. My first ever guest is no stranger to the squared circle. Started in professional wrestling by completing Fern Gagne's grueling wrestling camp with the class of 1972 that produced a number of future stars and Hall of Famers. He wrestled primarily in the American Wrestling Association, the AWA, from 1972 until the promotion closed in 1991. He also worked outside the ring as a road agent with the WOD and worked in WCW as a booker and television person. He also is a two-time former AWA World Tag Team Champion with Jumpin' Jim Brunzel, known as the High Flyers, a two-time AWA International Television Champion, and was named by Pro Wrestling Illustrated Tag Team of the Year in 1982. Ladies and gentlemen, one half of the legendary tag team known as the High Flyers, Mr. Greg Gagne. Greg, thank you for taking the time from your busy schedule to be on Bumps and Thumbs. I just, I am so excited to be on your program. The first ever, you know, I told you I was on a, on a podcast a couple weeks ago and they've been on the air for 11 years. And they said, boy, we are so glad to have had you on. And I said, well, yeah, you waited 11 years to get me. You're my first, you're, I, you're big time, man. I'm ready. I really yeah, appreciate anything you want tonight. You know, I'll, I'll give a quick overview. Uh, we talked about it earlier. When I emailed you, I didn't expect a response for at least a week or not at all. Cause you know, you're a busy man and I know you're got a big schedule. I'm retired. I'm not doing anything. I know, but <laughs> you responded in 10 minutes. I was just in shock and on. I just, told my friends i was just holy cow you responded in 10 minutes and we got everything set up and everything worked out so thank you again for coming on well you know we were brought up i was brought up in professional wrestling and and um my father used to say the most important people that you'll ever be around are going to be your fans mm-hmm. so always take time for them he learned that from uh jack dempsey he yeah. was riding in a car with jack dempsey he was refereeing one of their matches up in upstate new york and he saw Jack always take time with his, with his uh, fans. And he said, I learned from him and uh, you know, you always take time and uh, treat them because you know, they're the ones that come to see you and they pay your, your salary. <laughs> yeah. Speaking of that uh, first, I'd like to get into uh, being raised in a pro wrestling family and what was it like for you and your mom and, and your, and your sibling. Well, I'll start from the beginning. It was my my father started wrestling. He came out of the University of Minnesota. He was NCAA champion, uh, I think three years, uh, AAU champion, two years, Big Ten champion, three years, high school champion. And in and then he was on the U.S. Olympic team as an alternate in 1948. And 1949, he came back to Minneapolis and um, he'd gone to Robbinsdale High School, the University of Minnesota. So that was his home stomping grounds. And he wanted to be a professional wrestler. And he used to tell me from the time he used to hear it on the radio with his grandfather, 
Oh. But he always wanted to be a wrestler. And he, he lived in a little, a little town at that time of Hamill, Minnesota, with his aunt and uncle. His father kind of moved him out of the house when he was 11 years old because my dad wanted to play sports and he wanted him to go to work and quit school. And uh, Hamill to Robbinsdale uh, cross country is about, I don't know, 18 miles. And you when know, we went to high school, he walked it all the time. So he'd get up in the morning, work in the barn, uh, walk to school, come back home, get up early in the morning, clean the barn again, and then off to school. So uh, he, he, was, uh, he, he came up the hard way, never had any money. And uh, so he turned pro in 1949 and wrestled a guy by the name of Abe King Kong Cashy in the Minneapolis Auditorium. In the front row were three of his buddies from the University of Minnesota football team. Uh, you won't know these names, but you might recognize one of them. Uh, Billy Bai, uh, Jim Malosky, and Bud Grant. Oh, Bud Grant. He eventually yeah. went on to coach the Minnesota Vikings. Yep. Bud and him played together. These were his football buddies. So Vern's in the ring and Cashy is just hammering him. And uh, the three guys, Bud and Jimmy and, and uh, Billy, all stood up. And Cashy leaned over the ropes. He said, sit down, punks. <laughs> <laughs> they all sat back down. Bud still tells that story. <laughs> so uh, Vern won the match, but the promoter said, you know what? You're too small. We want to send you down to, uh, to Tulsa, Oklahoma. You're going to wrestle uh, as a junior heavyweight. They have a junior heavyweight league down there. So we had a, my dad bought a trailer and my mom, dad, and I got in this trailer, hooked it up to the back of the car and headed down to Tulsa. The second week there, he won the uh, junior heavyweight championship. And that circuit, we'd travel oh, from Tulsa. Sometimes he, he would station the, the trailer maybe in Tulsa for a week and he would do down into Texas, Louisiana, and then back up. And then we'd move again down to Texas somewhere and stay there for a couple of weeks. So in 1950, 51, he got a call from uh, a promoter in Chicago. And all of a sudden, I forgot his name. Anyhow, he, he called him and he said, hey, Vern, we're going on network TV here. It's the biggest thing for wrestling ever. And uh, we'd like to have you up here. So Vern, we drove up to Chicago, got in the, the, in the uh, locker room that night. And Fred Kohler, that was the promoter. And he said, hey, Vern, here's what we're going to do with you tonight. We're going to, this was, this was the time in the 50s where it was gorgeous George and everything was a gimmick, pretty much like it is today. And he said, we're going to dress you up as a Martian and lower you from the uh, ceiling. And Vern said, uh, in so many words, <laughs> the hell you are. <laughs> Different words he used, but the hell you yeah. are. He said, I'll tell you what, I've got my wrestling tights and my boots. I, and then he rattled off all his credentials. And he said, if I can't make it in wrestling with those, I will quit. But I'm going to go down to the ring. And you got 30 guys here tonight. I can take them on one at a time, two at a time, three at a time. I don't care. And if I don't beat them all, I'll quit. Well, nobody get in the ring with them. So they let him go in the ring with his tights and wrestling boots. And he became the first really major star. He was like the Hulk Hogan of that area, era or Hulk was like the Vern Gagne of his era. Right. Um, so he was telling us a story one day that uh, there were still territories around. So they had, they don't, they brought him and Pat O'Connor. They'd take two people off the network TV and they're bringing them up to Buffalo, New York as a tag team. And they, the plane was late. It was snowing and Vern and Pat got in a, a cab and they were, driving up to the uh, arena and they could, they could hardly get there. And they said, Oh my God, what's going on here in town? It's going to kill our, our gate tonight. And here it was for the wrestling. They turned away about 20,000 people that night. Oh, wow. And that's when he realized the strength of TV. And that's how eventually he got the AWA going. Wow. That is amazing. So he, he brought in, he changed it all. He brought in a lot of talent, uh, talent he trained and Jim Barnett, I don't know if you remember that name. He was a promoter uh, in Atlanta for a long time. He wrote programs uh, in Chicago at that time. But him and my dad became good friends. And, and Jim and Vern, Jim had a good, good eye for talent. And Vern 
saw talent and knew how to train it. And they brought in Hans Schmidt and Yukon Eric and Lou Thez and Kinji Shibuya and Mitsu Arakawa. Uh, just a list of great names. Who's who? Yeah. And um, they turned it around and it, it became huge. So huge that WGN, eventually it was the DuPont Network, changed to WGN. They had wrestling on seven nights a week. Oh, wow. And they, they burned it out. Yeah. So then uh, Vern started the vitamin store, or his vitamins, his own vitamins, and he would sponsor the show with the vitamins. Wow. And he gets, that's how he got on TV. He got, he got on in Detroit for Dick the Bruiser and the Sheik. And then came to Minneapolis, and in Minneapolis at that time they were drawing about 200 people in the matches on Tuesday nights. And Burns said, "Well, we got to change this around. We got to get TV changed." They were showing the opening match and the second match on TV. And um, so he bought in as a partner, and his job was to expand, and eventually, which became the AWA, and he expanded it from uh, Minneapolis to Winnipeg. Green Bay, uh, Milwaukee, Chicago, St. Louis, the Quad Cities, uh, up to Minneapolis, St. Paul, North and South Dakota, uh, Omaha, Lincoln, Denver, eventually Phoenix, Las Vegas, Salt Lake City, San Francisco. So we were the biggest territory in the country and covered, covered a lot. And then we were across uh, Winnipeg. It got so popular up there that they put it on TSN. We were across, uh, across Canada from Toronto or from uh, uh, Vancouver to uh, Ottawa. So the AWA was really had tremendous exposure and we had always the best talent. Yeah. I remember as a kid uh, watching the show and bringing in the talent. I mean, I can remember guys, Patera, Adrian Adonis, your partner, Jumpin' Jim, uh, Hogan came in, uh, Mad Dog. Oh, I mean, it was uh, it was everybody in wrestling because uh, the territory, you know, most territories at that time ran, ran every day of the week, and um, they'd wrestle 365 times a year. And once TV came in, they were doing double shots on the weekends. And in the AWA, Vern was big on giving people time for their families. And so we took all of May off in the two, two for first two weeks of June. In the Midwest, that time of the year was big and people didn't want to go inside anyhow, so we weren't drawn very well. Right. And then we pick up the major cities through uh, July, August, September, and then from end of September to April, uh, we, were, we were busy all the time and sold out quite a bit, almost every big arena. Yeah, I can remember, you know, as a kid too, uh, watching it, uh, my biggest, I couldn't stand Nick Bockwinkle. It, he played it beautifully. Him and Bobby Heenan. He didn't play it. That was him. <laughs> well, he did it very well. That's the difference between uh, today's wrestlers yeah. and our era. What you yeah. saw is what you got. Yeah. What those guys in the ring what, and out of the ring, they were the same personalities. There wasn't any difference. Now today they create a personality right. for the individual. Yeah. And some of them can work with it and some aren't so good. I mean, right, right now, um, I would say I, there isn't too many in that organization, the WWE that yeah. stand out for me as personalities. Yeah. Uh, I'll tell you right, right now, probably my favorite person wrestling is probably Chris Jericho. I, I think he's got the Jericho from Winnipeg. He used to watch yep. us all the time. And I, met, I, I met him one night and I just said, I flyers, man. Yeah. Watched you guys all the time. Yeah. He is. So, uh, uh, I, I can't, I, I tried to watch that the other night though. I can't watch that, that uh, yeah. W or a, a W. Yeah. That's a tough one for me. Yeah. I, I mean, without fans, it's, it's very challenging for it me. Really I, yeah, it, it's it's very difficult. I, I'll be honest right now, I don't really watch WWE too much just because it's so scripted. And, oh, it's just horrible. And I mean, it, it's bad to it me. It is. I mean, it's become it's become a live video game. Yeah. And um, 
it's it's funny because uh, I know a couple of questions you wanted to ask me tonight. You were asked about the families and what it was like traveling around. Mm-hmm. Well, my dad was on the road quite a bit, so growing up, he wasn't around a whole lot. So my mom was responsible for all of us, and she did a did a pretty good job. Pretty good job. I would, I would agree. And then, and then when I trained, when I got going and I got married, I mean, my my wife was just uh, phenomenal. It, this was a this was a funny story. We're, we're, we're flying to, uh, we're flying to Chicago, Jim and I, and we're up in first class. Everybody at Northwest knew us and we had the cards and we had so many miles that they just put us up there all the time. And I had played football with Jim at Minnesota. That's where we met our mm-hmm. freshman year. And um, so we get on the plane and uh, this gal gets on this blonde and this other blonde. And he said, Mary, how are you? It was Mary Graziger and her girlfriend, Mona. So they sat up front with us and talked to us. They were flight attendants and they were flying down to Miami. So we talked and talked for quite a while. And yeah, we got off the flight. And the next thing I knew, geez, I never got her phone number. I'd really like to take her out. Yeah. It took me a month. Her name was Graziger and I couldn't get it spelled right. It was G-R-A-I-Z-I-G-E-R. So my sister flew for the airlines. I said, hey, you got to do me a favor, Donna. Look up this Mary Graziger. See if you can get a phone number for me. So she finally found her, got a phone number, and I called her, and we went out. And my dad said, well, hey, who you went out with? And I said, Mary Graziger. Is that Q-Ball's daughter? I said, Q-Ball? I don't know. <laughs> so finally met her father, and his nickname was Q-Ball. <laughs> And it turns out that he went to the University of Minnesota. He was ahead of my dad. He was kind of a senior when my dad was a freshman. And um, he was, he won more uh, athletic letters than anybody else at the University of Minnesota. He still holds that record. Oh, wow. And um, so my mother-in-law, then she goes up in the attic and she finds this old program from 1943 from the University of Michigan. And we open the the second page, and here's Vern Gagne and Bob Graziger on the page in their football uniforms right next to each other with their, with their uh, bios on there. Wow. Isn't that unbelievable? That is an amazing so, story. That is an so amazing story. my wife story. took over for me. She said, I said, you know, here, it's, it's a tough life. I'm on the road. She said, hey, you bring home the money. I'll take care of the uh, banking. I'll take care of the kids. She got the kids, their sporting events, uh, three kids, uh, JP. Gail and Peter, and she did a phenomenal job. JP ended up uh, getting to Notre Dame on an academic scholarship, was recruited for baseball, football, and hockey. Oh, wow. He got there, got drafted by the Colorado Rockies. Uh, phenomenal. My daughter went and played basketball at Northern Colorado, and then my youngest one, Pete, he played baseball up at North Dakota. And uh, she was responsible for I coached them a lot. I, in the summertime, I took off a lot. Yeah. And as we got established, you could kind of pick your dates. So I coached football and baseball for both the boys. And my daughter played basketball, tennis. Uh, what else? She played old softball for a while. Did a lot. Yeah, they did a lot. My wife got them to all these practices and uh, all their, oh, she was phenomenal. Just a wonderful lady. Miss her a lot. Yeah, I'm sorry to hear that. Um, yeah, yeah behind... she pancreatic cancer for about four, almost four years, and we lost her a year ago last March. And uh, we'd have been married uh, this year; would have been 42 years. So Sounds like a very old. wonderful lady. Yep. Behind, you know. So that's what it was like being raised. After growing up, I mean, it was tough going to school, you know. And I went to a Catholic school, and this is kind of funny, you know. <laughs> Uh, we get our report cards and uh, the priest would come in and give the report cards. So I'm about fourth grade. His father moron was his name. And he, he calls me up, calls me up and he says, well, Hey, how did your dad do last night? Did he win? You know, and it was Tuesday. It was late. You know, I didn't know. I said, well, I don't know. And he, he got so mad at me. How, what do you mean? You don't know. Don't you take it. I said, father, he gets home late at night and I get up early in the morning and he's not up. I don't know if he won or lost you find out for us. You go in there and you call them right now. So between him and the nuns, they were always asking me. And then of course the older kids in the school, they would always tease me and, you know, had to defend myself quite a bit. Uh, So my father started me 
at a real young age, wrestling downstairs with him and teaching me balance and leverage and pretty much I could handle myself. Yeah, that sound, that would probably be very challenging having a dad that's well known and famous and then, you know, getting picked on and, and oh, stuff. Yeah. And yeah, I, I, well, you I feel for you. You learn you better be tough. <laughs> Um, okay, well, let's talk about uh, your the wrestling camp when you went through with Jumpin' Jim and Camp yeah. Terra. Well, Vern had, over the years, we counted Vern had trained 144 wrestlers. Wow. 99% of them ended up being main event wrestlers. Mm-hmm. Our camp, um, he, well, here's some of the guys he trained that probably people will know. Blackjack Lanza, Blackjack Mulligan, Larry Henning, yeah. uh, uh, Ole, Gene, and Lars Anderson. Oh, a lot of people didn't, wouldn't know that. I didn't know that. Um, uh, Sergeant Slaughter, Ricky Steamboat. I helped Ricky quite a bit. I, I was training them at that time. Uh, our camp had Ken Patera, Ric Flair, Jumpin' Jim, the Iron Sheik, Bob Bruggers and myself. And the only one that didn't make it was Bob Bruggers, but Bob had started late. He was about 31 when he started. Ah. He played pro football. It was a little harder on him. And he had a lot of injuries from football and was getting a lot of them in in the ring. But uh, Vern ran a camp that uh, everybody went through. Uh, It was uh, six hours a day, six days a week. He had this old barn, no windows in the barn, ring set up, one light bulb over the, over the ring. We started, because Patera was in the Olympics, so when we came back from the Olympics in 72, it was middle of September, we started training, and we went until the last week in January. Oh, wow. And we're out in that barn in Minnesota, and it's like 15 below zero. Cold. And we'd start out, we had to build up, we start out with free squats. Now there was a hundred guys that came to the camp. And after 20 minutes, there were six of us left. Oh, wow. I mean, they start out with free squats. They're called Hindu squats. It's a little jump in the squat. Mm-hmm. And we did sets of just four sets of 25, but we had to build up to a thousand nonstop. Oh. It'd take us a half hour to do those. Yeah. So we did an hour of calisthenics. Then we got in the ring and we did another hour of calisthenics in the ring where we'd stand on our head in the turnbuckle, no hands, and you'd have to roll on your head to build your neck up. Mm-hmm. And then we'd sit on each other's back. Like uh, I might get uh, flare at that time was 290 pounds. Patera was 340. So Jim and I would usually team up. Sometimes we'd get one of the, he'd want, they'd, they'd switch or something, make us go on one of the bigger guys. Yeah. And we'd sit, they'd be on all fours and we'd sit facing their butt and hook our feet in the crotch and then we would do a sit-up and we'd sit back and we'd have to push their head down and then they would push their neck back up to build the neck and build our stomach muscles oh wow and then they had a a bunch of calisthenics we did in the ring then the third hour uh was holds and counter holds and we do them over and over and over just like a football play you run it over till you you know you don't even have to think about it yeah. And, and then the fourth hour, we'd hit the ropes. And the ropes, the first six weeks it took, it took all the skin off underneath uh, your arm down to your, almost down to your waistline. Wow. And a couple guys broke their ribs. But, uh, Bruggers broke his ribs. Cosro, he, he went to hit it. And the top rope hit him behind the head, knocked him out. He went through the ropes and right on <laughs> the floor oh no <laughs> oh yeah so wow um and then we would do uh the fifth hour was another uh more it was bumps and we take about a thousand bumps a day learning how to fall and protect yourself wow. and then the last hour um they would take us outside and it was about about a half mile down to the lake and we'd have to run sprints. We'd run 15 yards, walk 15 yards, run 15 yards. And then we'd jog across the road 
and they had 145 acres on this farm and he had another <laughs> 140 across the road, which went down to the uh, Minnesota river. So there was river, there was banks down there and we'd run up and down those clay banks, sand banks. Yeah. And wow. we'd usually come in at dark and it would be Brunzel and I'd usually be first, then Cosro, then Bruggers, and then Flair, who was 285 when he, or 292 <laughs> when he got to camp. He yeah. ended up about 250 when we got done. Material <laughs> went from 340 to 310. Wow. They'd be, they'd just be barely their step and then throwing up. And uh, we did that six days a week. Then we had to go work out with the weights when we got done. Oh, wow. So as we progressed and we got better, now we're into January and it is 15, 18 below zero. Yeah. And they had this drill. They put one guy in the middle of the ring. And then the rest of us be on the outside and one would get in with them. So if I'm in the ring and he, these Brunzel's the next one in, we, they would call tie up, headlock, two tackles, hip lock, cover them, kick out. He'd call all these things and you'd go, you'd go th three to four minutes with each guy. So you're in there for, you know, anywhere from 15 to 25 minutes. Later on, we built up to 30 minutes. And so then I'd go through each guy would come in and do that. And then I'd get at the end of the line and then your sweatpants and sweatsuits would start to freeze on you. <laughs> and then you get to the front of the line and the first thing you'd call would be a body slam. <laughs> you'd like that cartoon creature you'd see, you know, when they hit the, <laughs> that's what it felt like. And we all went through it. Wow. Flair actually quit twice. And the first time Vern comes to the camp, maybe you heard this one on ESPN. I told it on the yeah. uh, Rick's 30, 30 and 30. Um, he, he quit. Well, we had him convinced. We never told this to Vern because he'd have killed all of us. <laughs> we told, we were on the second story. And down below it used to be, a, it used to be cows down there and horses. So it was all muddy and ground up and there was horse shit everywhere. In <laughs> we convinced Flair that you had to dive out of this window and take like a backdrop onto this frozen ground oh. he was scared shitless <laughs> every day we'd say you know we don't have to do it for the end of the camp that's how we have to prove it so as we're getting closer to the end rick quits and Vern gets there and he says and billy robinson was helping with the training he said uh, hey where's flair i said well he quit but we lived in a, a duplex so rick was on one side with his wife and then it was Bruggers, Pater, and I, and the other one. And he said, what do you mean he quit? I said, well, he quit. So Vern, he's at, he drove over there, and uh, his wife answers the door, and, and Vern says, where's Rick? Well, he's inside. Well, tell him to come out. Well, he quit wrestling. He said, tell him to come out. So Rick comes out and says, what's going on? He said, I quit. I can't make it. So Vern open hands him, knocks him right on his ass. Oh, wow. He says, get up, get in my car. You're going out to the camp. So Rick came out and went through the camp and, and about two weeks later, he quit again because he said, Hey, we're getting next week and we're going to, you know, we're getting near the end. We're going to have to take that dive out the window. <laughs> so same thing happened again. And uh, then the end came and, and uh, we'd never had to dive out that window. <laughs> That's a great story. A great story. Um, yeah. But it was a, it was a tough one. Um, Vern put a lot of big names through that, through that camp. I mean, it goes back to guys like Butch Levy and Leo Namalini and, and uh, buddies of his, Joe Scarpello, you know, uh, that's way back. People wouldn't even know those names, but uh, it was, it was, uh, it was tough. So anybody that came out of there, uh, you had a good, 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 solid background. We did an, oh, we did an hour of uh, submission holes with Billy Robinson. Ouch. Yeah. <laughs> You know, him and Vern would they teach us two or three a day. And then we'd have to get on the mat with them and wrestle them. And they'd leave their arm out and they'd say, okay. And, and then by you'd think, you know, what you had to do, you'd grab the arm and then they'd reverse it and they'd stick your foot right up in your ear. <laughs> <laughs> so we were pretty, we were pretty, uh, pretty raw when we came out of there. And, and we didn't really know how well we had been trained or what we were capable of doing. Mm -hmm. um, but we had a, had an experience at a party one night 
we had these parties on Wednesdays and we were hooked up with the left guard, Max McGee and Fuzzy Thurston owned. And the bouncer there would send all the, the girls to the parties. So one night Chuck Foreman is there, the old running back for the Vikings. And Wahoo McDaniels made this punch with um, vodka, fruit juice, Everclear, and then he'd throw Benny's in there. <laughs> so I told Chuck, I said, Chuck, don't drink more than one of those things. Well, Chuck drank about three. Oh, no. And he was, he was stood against the wall and never made a move all night. He said, I said, Chuck, you okay? Well, I don't know what happened. I can't move, man. I can't move. <laughs> so a little later, these three bouncers come to the party. And they're all about six four to six six six, and in that two seventy to three hundred range. And one of Chuck's friends was there, and he's sitting on a table. And this one bouncer comes in, and he he used the N word, oh, and said, "I don't like you, pal," and tore his shirt. And I said, "Hey, who who who, who are you?" He said, "I don't like." He used the N word again. I said, "Well, you're not welcome here, because this is our party, and I don't even know who the hell you are." He said, well, what are you going to do about it? And I said, well, let's step out in the hall. I said, you're probably going to knock the crap out of me, but, you know, I'm willing to go out there with you. So Red Bestine was there, and he followed me out, and Billy Robinson was down the hall. He didn't know what was going on. So this guy went to hit me, and he was the big one, and I hit him on the chin, and his legs buckled, and he, his, he went straight down. His head bounced off the floor. Oh. Red knocked out the other guy. The third guy came running at us and Billy clotheslined him. And the guy got up and he hit him and he got up again. And we said, well, we knocked ours out with one punch. <laughs> these, these guys were out till four in the morning before they got back. We thought we killed them. I mean, wow. I mean, that's when we realized, you know, that we could. And Vern told us, you'll be able to handle yourself with anybody. You don't have to be afraid of anybody in the ring or out of the ring. Yeah. Wow. So that was quite a quite an education yeah it's an amazing in meantime, i've heard in the meantime rick flair would come out of the other room with just his cowboy boots on and a cowboy hat and yeah party time <laughs> oh. with a big erection <laughs> oh. <laughs> he was proud of that oh that sounds like the stories i've heard about him yeah, too. Or that was him yeah so, so can we talk about some of your travel experiences, like from one car to another? I know you guys back then drove a lot. Uh, well, we, dro we drove a lot. It was, it was nice in the AWA because they eventually bought a small plane. It was supposed to seat 12, but with the weight restrictions, it carried seven wrestlers and a pilot. And they, they hired some really great pilots for us mm -hmm. from Northwest Airlines. We had some hairy experiences on the plane, though. A lot of guys were nervous getting on it. And we were instructed, no fighting on the plane. Anybody gets on, you never get back on. They usually try to take the top two matches or three matches on the card and get them there. And then the younger guys had to drive. But we used to, when we first started, man, we, I, they put me on the ring truck. Wow. Rough ring and ring truck. And I did that for about four months. And my, I remember my last one, this George Gadaski. I said, George. Pete, how do you do this all the time? He says, when you get to the town, you find a bunch of these young guys that want to get into the match. They come on in, help me put up the ring and take it down. So we go to uh, Sioux Falls, South Dakota. And now I'm in about my fourth month of this. And uh, I get these young guys. And I said, yeah, and they come and they help me put it up. We get it up in no time at all. I said, now I, when the matches are over, I got them into the matches free. I said, you guys start. Here's what I want you to start with this, this, and this. And then uh, when I get done, I'll come out and give you a hand. So I'm back in the locker room and I had refereed all the matches. It was like a hundred degrees there. And Dick Byers is in there, the destroyer. Yeah. He says, man, you look like you need a beer. So we sat and we drank. He says, you got any help? I said, yeah, I got guys working on the ring. Well, good, good job. So we sat there and talked a while and drank a couple of beers. I go out, the kids had left in the ring and never got taken down. Oh, so I'm there till it took me like two and a half hours to get the ring down. I drive back. I get in at six in the morning. Wally Carbo calls me and he says, Hey, pal, you got to drive the ring up to Winnipeg tonight. I said, Wally, I haven't even been to bed yet. I'm an hour sleep. I can't, I can't make it. 
well, pal, you got to drive up there. And I said, I can't, I'm done. So then my dad called me chewing my ass. I said, Hey, I've only had an hour of sleep. I'll never make it driving up there. So that was my last, last four, four months on the ring that I did. So he wanted me to learn the business from the ground up and, yeah. and I did. That's an amazing know, story. Question you asked me, I got off on a tangent there. <laughs> That's okay. No, so I'm traveling town to town. It was, yeah, the road trips, uh, it was tough. I remember Jim and I made one to Springfield, Illinois from Minneapolis. And back then a lot of two lanes, it took us eight or 12, almost 12 hours to get there. Oh, wow. And Reggie Parks drove. Remember Reggie with the cast iron stomach? Yes. So we finished and now we got to drive back from Springfield back to Minneapolis. And then the next night we were up in Winnipeg, which was another 500 miles. So oh. Reggie said, don't worry, boys, I'll drive. And Reggie, could drink beer like nobody have ever seen. And he never put on an ounce of weight. And he, he drank a case of beer driving back. And he never, he, he didn't change from, didn't get drunk or anything. Couldn't tell the <laughs> difference. But there was, there was trips like that. They were, they were tough trips. But you know what? That's where you learn. You got to talk, you know, we got to talk about our match. We talked to the, the experienced guys that we were driving with and they would give us uh, a lesson on what we did and what we did wrong. And it was, it was, it was, it was in the camaraderie, you know, yeah. we never, we, we were always with, you know, good guys and good guys and bad guys wrestling, grow with them. Right. So I remember one night, the first night where I get a match, it's Ric Flair and I in Peoria, Illinois. And we're the first match and Ray Stevens is there and, Mick Bockwinkle and uh, all the, all the top guys. And they want to watch the match. They want to see what the two rookies can do. And we go out there. Two minutes in the match, I body slam Rick and the ring caves in. he goes right through it. Oh. And we ended up, we ended up finishing the match a 20 minute draw with, with a broken ring. Oh my gosh. And we came in and, and we'd only, this is like, you know, this is we're only a couple months into the business. Yeah. And uh, Rick had started before me because they had me doing the referee in the ring. So he was probably six months and I was in my second month. And they, they just, they came out and they said, guys, that was, that was unbelievable that you two guys, rookies finished that match that way. They said it was outstanding. And that was a pretty good compliment. Yeah. That's amazing. I've never heard that story. Yeah. That's, that's very interesting. Uh, let's talk about, if we can, uh, your chemistry with some wrestlers. Um, you know, we watched matches with you and, and Ronnie Garvin uh, when you were tag teaming with Jumping Jim and you had Crusher and Bruiser. Or uh, when One you time, guys- I, I, it, it, was, it was funny because um, I was, we were really fortunate, you know, in the AWA because all the top talent wanted to come there and wrestle uh, because they didn't have to go 350 times a year, they had time for their families and they made a really good living. If you were main event and you were uh, winning a lot, you could make a really good living, but you had to be in that top spot. So you earned it. And I remember the first time Jim and I had a big shot was in Denver, Colorado. And in Denver in January, they always had the rodeo out there. So they moved it from the auditorium to this big rodeo ring. And it was a big, stadium i mean the people sat a long ways away from me except the ones on the, the bleachers and we were wrestling lars anderson and larry hainimi and um or uh, lars anderson was larry hainimi lars anderson and buddy wolf okay and they were the number one contenders and we knocked them off that night oh, wow. and and back going back to the locker room they jumped us from behind <laughs> we had a, we had a pretty good pretty good fight. So event, they eventually they said, well, let's give the young kids a shot. They gave us Nick Bachwinkle and Ray Stevens in Peoria, Illinois. So Jim and I get down there and we're, we're in our third, this is our third, third year in wrestling. Jim had gone to Kansas city, wrestled down there for a while. And when he came back, they teamed us up. Uh, I don't think anybody really gave us any big chance of going very far, yeah. but that kind of woke them up. And we get down into Peoria and it was in a high school gym 
uh, I can't remember the name of the gym, Boylan, no, was Boylan, either Boylan or Richmond. And it seated 4,000 people and we're in the summer and you know, you know, people don't come in in the summer. Yeah. It was full. And we had a heck of a match with those two. It was, uh, and it kind of, after that is when the promoters around the country really, you know, gave us the push. They said, hey, got to get them on the card. But we had, uh, we're wrestling one night in Denver, Colorado. Denver was kind of a big town for Jim and I. And the Denver Auditorium was a round building seated about 14,000 people. And I went to school at University of Wyoming. So I always got a, a lot of ink in Denver when we were coming in. And um, Patterson had been away for about six months. And they put us in there because it was a hot town for us. And it sold out. And when you'd come out, honest to God, Brian, it was unbelievable. That building would just pulsate. I get goosebumps now talking about it. And you would get that adrenaline. You could jump higher and you could do everything. And Jim and I, I would always usually start the match because I was used to the altitude. At Laramie, it was 7,200. It was 5,600 in Denver. And we'd take out and keep these guys going. So we get Patterson and Stevens and they got Bobby Heenan in the, in the corner. And in eight minutes, Patterson and Stevens had a top Rick's lock on us. They never threw a punch. They never kicked. They pulled our hair or our tights and we would get out of these holes and they'd get us back in by pulling our tights or our hair. And in eight minutes, we had a full fledged riot. Oh, wow. People coming into the ring to help us. They had the police pulling them off and yeah. I mean, that when you you talk about chemistry, yeah, uh, we had it with a lot of teams that really was, I don't know, it was it was amazing. East West Connection, yeah. we got so tired of wrestling them. Every promoter wanted us to wrestle. We had we almost wrestled them. I had we had to wrestle them two hundred times one year. Maybe oh wow! Every promoter wanted that. We got so sick of wrestling them. You know, and eventually you're going to get knocked off. I mean, you can't keep, you can't keep it going. Uh, Jesse could talk him into the building, Mm -hmm. but Adrian carried the match. He was phenomenal in the ring. You know, I mean, we get guys like Nick Barwinkle, Ray Stevens, Pat Patterson, uh, Adrian Adonis, uh, Mad Dog Bashan. I mean, that was a character and a half, man. (laughs) I mean, there's stories I can tell you about him all night long. But the first time I wrestled him in Minneapolis, I said to my dad, you know, I'd see my dad with bite marks and scratches on him. I'd say, what do I do with this guy? He said, hit him twice as hard as he hits you. Whoa. And I said, and, and good luck. So I go out in the ring, you know, I'm going, holy shit. And you see this guy over there, you know, that look, he's got his teeth and yeah. oh, God, I'm going, Oh my God. So, I lock up with him and he hits me with an open hand and his hand was like a cement block. You could feel it down into your feet. So I hit him back and he goes harder. And he hits me and I hit him harder and he hits me again and I hit him again. And I, the, the fourth time I hit him, I hit him right over the ear and he lost his equilibrium. So I grabbed a leg and I took him down just to get my, my breath. And when I did, I'm taking my breath and he, scratches my back peeled all the skin off my back so I wrestle him for about 20 some minutes get back in the locker room and Jim is sitting there and we had separate locker rooms from the other guys and I sit down on the chair and I'm bleeding and I'm scratched up and I said hey it's not so funny you got him Friday night in Denver and all of a sudden Mad Dog kicks open the door and I go oh shit here we go (laughs) I've seen this before. So I stand up and I got one hand on my chair and I'm looking at him and he's going like this thing. And he goes, shakes my hand. I respect you. Well, I bought shit in my pants right there, (laughs) but you had to fight him and he respected you. And uh, so the following Friday, Jim has him in Denver and Jim says, Hey, what do you do with this guy? I said, you're asking me, you were laughing at me last week. I, I said, all I can tell you, is what Vern told me. 
what's that? I said, hit him twice as hard as he hits you. And he goes, and? And I said, and good. <laughs> so he gets in the ring, and Mad Dog backs him right into the turnbuckle, and he hits him. And Jim hits him, and Mad Dog hits him, and Mad Dog says, harder. And Jim hits him hard. Harder, harder. The third time he hits him, he hits Mad Dog right on the chin. Mad Dog grabs him with that finger of his in the mouth, whips him around, fires him out of the ring. Jim hits the floor, and he said, knock the wind out of me, and I see the shadow. And it's Mad Dog. He jumped off the apron, both feet onto my stomach, and all the air went out of me. Oh. Then he grabs me by the mouth again, throws me back in the ring, and he scratches my back, puts a reverse chin lock on me. I can't breathe. And he goes, not that hard. <laughs> He got back in the locker room and he was bleeding and screaming. I'm laughing at him. I said, hey, there you go, pal. Wow. That's yeah. an amazing story. Yeah. But I mean, we, you know, there was uh, Bobby Heenan. You know, he was probably one of the top five performers of all time. Yeah. He was the only guy that could manage guys and not only establish his team or his, whoever he was managing, but also himself. And then in the ring, he was, he he gave the people what they wanted to see. Man, he was unbelievable. A weasel we were, suit. Yeah. Well, that was that was written up here just a few weeks ago in the paper. Oh. One of the writers here said they had the top three major events that were ever in Minneapolis. You know, we had the Super Bowl there, and we had the, we've had a lot of stuff. The World Series, yeah. and it's, the weasel suit match was like number one. Oh, wow. Yeah. That's so they wrote a whole article on it and showed video of it. That's, wow. That's I, You know, it was, it was an interesting, um, it was, Jim and I also get a wrestle, you know, outside of the AWA. Mm-hmm. They brought us down to Atlanta. Um, Jim Arnett brought us down there. We were supposed to wrestle Bob Orton and uh, Dick Slater. They were the Georgia's champions. Okay. So they wanted to build it up. It would, they wrestled every week, so they built it up for a week. And the second week, then we were going to wrestle them for the championship. Mm-hmm. So our first match, we're in uh, Columbus, Georgia. And we're on the second match, and we've got Dr. Jerry Graham and Rip Hawk. And they're two old-timers, and yeah. they're kind of at the end of their deal. Well, we had a match with them about 22 minutes, and we had the place rocking and people standing and we came in and, and the promoter or the booker at that time, I forget what his name was. He said, what are you doing? I said, what do you mean? What are we doing? We're having a match. <laughs> oh, well, you tore the place down. Nobody can follow that. And nobody could, nobody could follow that. Right. And he got pissed off. So he made us wrestle Jerry Briscoe and Bob Backlund the next two weeks in clean matches every night. So we went into Jim Barnett and I said, Hey, Jim, you know, you brought us down here to wrestle Orton and, and Slater and they got us wrestling these guys. I said, we're making no money. I mean, we're in Denver and we make in Denver what we make here in a week. I yeah. said, you know, in St. Louis and Chicago and Milwaukee. Well, he's my booker, you know, and uh, he just said that you guys stole the show and we can't let anybody steal the show over our talent. So, we said, well, we'll finish up. We'll head home. Yeah. Wow. Was, uh, but we were trained right. And, you know, um, our job was to go out there and, and, you know, everybody. The one thing I always tell people, what we watched every match. We tried not to duplicate any match ahead of us. Right. And we always wanted to make sure that people got their money's worth. That's all we wanted to do. We weren't in there for any egos or anything else. It was, yeah, it was strictly that. You know, I hear, I hear now that you know a lot of it is scripted, and you know, what? How was the matches? I mean, did you guys just go over a brief overview of everything? Hey, let's just try this or anything. You don't even talk to your opponents. No, no, not back then. Yeah, you got in, and you know, we were able to know how to wrestle and, and, you know, the object Vern taught us is you try to find the weakness on your opponent and then concentrate on that. Yeah. And, um, 
you know, get your, we got ourselves established. I mean, there was, uh, yeah. you knew, you knew the outcome, but you'd had everything else was done in the ring. We had a match one time. I tell people that this is the Cow Palace in San Francisco, mm -hmm. hardest place to wrestle in the world. It was big arena. You know, I mean, it was for rodeos and that. Mm -hmm. And Ray Stevens was a hero out there. Yeah. And we were wrestling Tito Santana and Rick Martel, and we were the tag team champions. And we're going out, and there's three matches after us. Um, Bachwinkle's on the card. Stevens is on the card. Uh, Blackwell. I mean, I, maybe we're the. I think we're maybe the second. For there was two main events, and we were the one of the main events. I don't know. Mm -hmm. Yeah. So we go out, and as Martel and Santana walk out, the people are all going bullshit, bullshit. <laughs> I'm going, holy Christ. So we go out and we think, well, maybe they're going to cheer for us. Bullshit. Bullshit. <laughs> so for 18 minutes, Jim and I were trying to get out of a hole. And we, there were some big, big spots in there. And Martel and Santana ended up on top. And the first five minutes, bullshit, boring, bullshit, boring. After the 10-minute mark. Now they're starting to get with it. At the 18-minute mark, we had him standing. Wow. And we ended up going another match was scheduled for about 22 minutes. We went about 40 minutes, and we had him standing the whole time. And when we came out, every wrestler in the air, my dad was first, grabbed us. He said, guys, that was the greatest match I've ever seen. Oh, wow. Well, you guys controlled that crowd, and you got those those people into it. You know, and that was the whole objective of the thing is – you know, get the people involved. Yeah, they paid a lot of money to see it. Get them involved, yeah. and yeah, every 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 Bachwinkle, Stevens, Blackwell, they all came up to us and said, "Guys, unbelievable, man! That was fantastic." And that was, you know, when you get compliments from people like that, yeah. then you know that you've established yourself. Yeah, you didn't get in trouble for sealing the show. No, at that time. <laughs> no, I mean those guys still, you know, they they could follow it, but. In the AWA, everybody was such a great performer, yeah. but you, you always, we always wanted to be better than the match ahead of us. Yeah. Of and course. we always wanted to be in the main event. And then, and then once you got there, I mean, you know, you, yeah. you controlled it. I mean, we had sensational matches with Baron Von Raschke and Mad Dog Vachon. Yeah. You know, they look at us and look at them and holy Christ, people. Yeah. I mean, when I was a kid, I would watch those, and you had the who's who in wrestling. Yeah. I mean, it was – and well, honestly – go ahead, Greg. I'm sorry. Roddy Piper got his start. Nobody knows that in the AWA. He wrestled out of Winnipeg, but he he was yeah. – he, he was just a rookie, and he was getting hammered by everybody, and they sent him out to Oregon, and that's where he got his first big break. But he was, yeah, Roddy Piper, and uh, Vern found him. Uh, you know, every time he throw out some of these names, I keep thinking, God, that's you know, one of the guys Vern found and worked with. I didn't know that about Roddy Piper. That's that's yeah. interesting. Yeah. So, what about um, working with maybe the Sheiks? How you oh, guys look like that was? Oh, you mean Sheik and Blackwell? Sheik and Blackwell, and then when Batera came in there, I mean that Batera looked like like a just a huge rivalry. And it was. Blackwell was, um, he was an interesting cat. You know, he was, he was big, 400 and some pounds. I remember the first time I wrestled him in Rockford, Illinois in a single match. And it was jammed and it was in August and it was hotter than hell. And they had those gym lights. And I'm in the locker room and I said, I'm laughing. I said, 15 minutes. I'll have this guy's tongue. He'll be stepping on his tongue. Well, I got in the ring and that's, I could not control him. I couldn't get him going. He had all that weight on me. I was in the ring with him for 45 minutes and I thought I was going to die. <laughs> I, came out of I had a new respect for him. Yeah. For a big guy, he was unbelievable in the ring. He had great timing and uh, he, if, if he set the pace, it was, it was really tough. But him and Patera were really, for some, 
reason, kind of an odd looking team, but man, we had, we had hellacious matches with him. The Sheik was the weak link. Really? And yeah. He wasn't, uh, he wasn't as good. I remember Brunzel broke his leg one night and <laughs> one of his leg drops on it. Oh yeah. I mean, you could hear it too. And I heard him. He broke my fucking leg. <laughs> and Jim tagged me out and I said, what happened? He says, I broke his leg. I said, I heard it. <laughs> yeah. Uh, he, but, um, you know, we were, uh, I look back and I look at that talent and there's no way you couldn't have a good match. Yeah. I mean, if you were, if you had any athletic ability at all in any sense of, you know, what the sport was all about at that mm-hmm. time. Uh, it was just, we were very fortunate to be surrounded by great talent, learned from all of them. Yeah. Um, it was, it was fun. It was really fun. Yeah. I mean, I, injuries, but a lot of fun. <laughs> I mean, as a kid, I was always glued to the TV on Sunday mornings. Uh, I would just, that time slot, I'd be there. My dad would, my dad didn't care for it. I'll be honest with you, but my mom would, honestly distract him so he wouldn't be in the living room <laughs> he'd be doing something else so i could watch it uh-huh. uh, but you know i i enjoyed it i love it i i mean it's a lot different today than it was yes, then. Well, it's all it's all it's all for show yeah you know and they they take the they take the talent and they try to create the personality mm-hmm. you know i went down and, and i was working for the wwe and one night, and all I was was um, worked with the TV people and with Vince. And I had Dusty Rhodes, uh, uh, Michael Hayes, Ted DiBiase, and myself. We were the four wrestlers in there. The other guys were right. And the first time I go in there, I got these right. I said, who are these guys? Well, he wrote for David Letterman, and he wrote for Seinfeld. And he wrote for, I said, well, what do they do? Well, they write the interviews for the guy. I said, what? You're kidding me. So I got through that. And one day Vince and I are watching a match with Shawn Michaels. And Shawn was one of the guys that came to us. Yep. He was trained by um, Jose Lothario, but we finished him off. Mm-hmm. I I also finished, I helped, I finished off Steve Austin, Triple H, Booker T, um, Kevin Nash, Diamond Dallas Page. Oh. They were all at WCW when I was down there and they asked me to work with them. I did not uh, know that. And those five guys that came back one day, there was one other one there. Oh, um, um, the Undertaker. But he had he had he only was with me for a couple of weeks. Then they let him go. So I came back and I said, "Hey, these these are your guys: Steve Austin, Booker T, uh, Kevin Nash, uh, Steve. Uh, who else was there? Oh, I forget who it was. And I and I said, they're your next five stars." Two days later, they fired him, let him all go to New York. And they told me to push Diamond Dallas Page. They wanted him to be the champion. I said, he's two years away from being any kind of a draw for you. Yeah. So I didn't see eye to eye with him down there. But anyhow, so then Vince and I were watching Shawn Michaels, and he said, God, why can't my guys wrestle like that? I said, well, guess what you got? Not getting trained right. Yeah. Oh, you think you can do it? I said, Sure. So they had two camps, one in Louisville, Kentucky, and one in, in Atlanta. So I'd have to get up at 4 o'clock on Monday morning, uh, get to the airport, fly to Chicago, get into Louisville at 10. I had to be in the ring at 10. But I was always a little late, and I'd, and they had different classes. So we'd usually go to probably 8 o'clock at night, different you know levels of talent. And then I'd have to write a TV show for the next day, and we had to get there at be there at nine in the morning. We went till midnight, get up the next day at four, fly to Atlanta, drive 65 miles, write a TV show for that night and then train Thursday and half day Friday and then go home. So I get to Louisville and the the two guys on there, Danny Davis and, um, uh, Oh God, I can see him. I can't think of his name. He, He was really good. Uh, they were, they were doing the training. And um, I helped out. And, they, and they'd, they'd say, well, here's the guys we're pushing. I said, I want to know who you're pushing. I want to, you know, I'm down here to do this. 
same thing in Atlanta. I get down there. Here's the, here's the, here's the seven guys that you got to push up the WWE. I said, well, I'll make the decision on who goes up there. Yeah. So generally out of those two camps, every six months, they'd get one guy out of both camps. One would make it up there. In six months, I got 17 of them ready for him. I had CM Punk. I had the Miz. Um, God, I can't even think of all the guys I had there, but they all went up and most of them made it. Yeah. And in Atlanta, out of the seven guys, only one of the ones that they suggested I took up there. So, you know, it was, uh, it was a great experience. Yeah. Uh, but I trained, I tried to train in the same way, Vern. I was going to say, is the training style for when you were trained, I, obviously it's much different than it is different today. Now. Now, but, now they show them videos of, of uh, video games. You know, the guys doing all these kicks and that. Yeah. You know, it's not wrestling anymore. Yeah. I mean, it's just, to me, it's a live video game. Yeah. I mean, the McMahons have done, they brought wrestling to the, to the top of the sports world. Yeah. I give him credit for that. Yeah. I mean, nobody else, we couldn't, nobody else could do it but him. Uh, and I, I give him credit for that. Yeah. He put, he, he put it on a national level. Yeah, I agree. I mean, wide, worldwide level. I mean, they've yeah. done a good job. Yeah. I'm still friends with uh, Triple H and Stephanie. I talked to quite a bit. Yeah. Um, she's the one that fired me, but she's told <laughs> Two guys on Leonard told her I was teaching him to drop kick the wrong way. And I said, oh. Stephanie, I made my living drop kick. I was gonna say, aren't you the drop kick drop yeah. kick king? That's, well, that's Jim, what we're known Jim for. Jim had the best one. Jim had a really great I thought you both were fantastic. Uh, when I was a kid, yeah. I'd watch you guys. Dan Jensen one night and Pat Patterson another night with a drop kick. Knocked him cold. Yeah, I I just I think the training is so much different today. I, I mean, I don't, I've never been to a wrestling camp or anything. I can't speak for it from personal it, it experience. Is. I mean, it, uh, uh, it's, they make it hard on them. Yeah. I'm just training a girl right now, or I, I was, mm-hmm. uh, and she got a tryout with them. Mm-hmm. She went down there. She did the physical, she did her interview and then the Corona hit. So they sent everybody home. Yeah. She just got a letter last week. Uh, they picked her as one of the, they had 80 people down there as one of the top five or 10. Mm-hmm. And I've trained her the same way we were trained. Yeah. And, uh, and she, she's going to be really good. Jesse Lynn, watch for her. Jesse Lynn. I'll They're gonna give her a tryout in September or October again. So hopefully she'll make it good. But That's I teach good. them the basics. I go back to the basics. I said, if you can, if you learn the basics and you learn all these holds and counter holds, you'll never have a problem. You can step up the pace for TV like they want it, yeah. and you'll learn all that other crap from them. But if you right. have the basics, that's what the rest of them don't have. Yeah, it, it it is a lot different. I think they more concentrate, and I might be wrong, but how they speak, how they act, they write their interviews for them. Right. I mean, it's it's more of the interview and how they speak than their angering ability. Now. I mean, most matches I watch nowadays, they probably last, they don't last more than five minutes, maybe 10. I, 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 and I think I, it's because uh, they run out of ideas. They run out of moves. They, they get tired out. I mean, that's just my assumption. When I was training guys and they were working on their interviews, I'd say, let's go out tonight. And I'd get about three or four beers in them. And then their real personality would come out. And I said, that's who you really are. Yeah. That's who you want to, that's what you want to project. Yeah. It's who you really are. And you've all got that in you. It's just you're inhibited and you're shy and you can't you can't let it come out to get a few drinks in you. Yeah. Uh, Miz, you know, I worked with him. They, they, nobody liked him down there, and I said, "Well, you're cocky." I said, "Just stay that way. Don't worry about it." CM Punk, he was struggling. He said, "They won't give me a break up there," and he was pissed off. And I said, "Well, do your interview like you're pissed off. Talk about how they're screwing you, how you don't like McMahon." <laughs> and he did. It works. And it works. Yeah. And then Stephanie was getting mad at me for not writing out the interview. I said, Stephanie, you know, I give them a, a beginning and an ending and they fill in the middle and I want to get their own personalities out of them. Well, we create personalities. Right. And I said, that's why they don't have any of the Steve Austins, the CM Punks, the Triple H's, the, the rock, 
yeah. the Undertaker, the Flair, yeah. any of those guys, they don't have those guys. Kurt Henning, I yeah. trained Kurt. Kurt went through our camp. He went through Vernon myself. And Kurt, I, I told him one day, he said, I don't know. I said, just be yourself. You're cocky, prick. Just be who you are and you'll do fine. You're great in the ring. Yeah. Now just let it go who you really want to be. Yeah. I can remember uh, Kurt when he first started. I was about uh, 12, maybe. And I saw him. Uh, and he was really shy on the mic. He didn't say too much. Uh, and then once he started going, he was tag team champion with Scott Hall for a while. And then when he got that push to be the champ when working with Nick, that's when I really saw his personality coming out. Well, that's when we had to, we had to get it out of him. That was the only yeah. way to do it. Yeah. Yeah, I'll tell you what. The kids are all hollering at me. They got barbecued ribs and brisket okay. over there. Okay. Uh, I hate to cut you off. No, this has if been great. Leave me a, if you want to talk again sometime, you can call me anytime, Brian. I appreciate it, Greg. Thank you so much for your time. 